welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a new podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we feature Marie Campbell. Marie is an elected at-large board member for the California Association of Environmental Professionals. She's past president of the National Association of Environmental Professionals and the sole owner and president of Sapphos Environmental, a successful environmental consulting business. Marie discusses the importance of making investments to achieve long-term goals and choosing to make investments that benefit the greatest number of people. We enjoy speaking with Marie and learning from her experience, and thank you, Will, as well. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel, and our guest today is Marie Campbell, owner of Sapphos Environmental. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We are excited because you have multiple connections with AEP and NAEP. Walk us through how you're connected. Well, that's a great question, a great place to start. Thank you so much. Um, I actually became a member of NAEP when I was an undergraduate student at UCLA who has a really strong connection uh, with uh, NAEP and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And uh, after my first job, working about five years with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, I went over to a private consulting firm uh, in California. So unlike many others, I actually started on NEPA and then moved to the California Environmental Quality Act. And while I was at this private consulting firm, um, I was asked to step in uh, to attend an Orange County chapter meeting of the Association of Environmental Professionals. And that's how I became exposed to California AEP. And I enjoyed the experience so much um, and the people, so many people that are still really active with the NAP were at that meeting. Um, Ian Forrest, who's our legislative analyst for Los Angeles. Uh, Bill Halligan, I think was a new member at the time. Uh, so I became involved uh, immediately and got really involved um, when I moved uh, and started my own firm here in Los Angeles. Um, I got really involved in the Los Angeles chapter and then have like so many others worked up through various positions on the chapter board to become a chapter director. And now I'm an elected at-large board member for California AEP. It's just been a great, great ride. Something I would recommend for anyone who has an opportunity to get involved. I agree. You and I are both directors at large on the state board. And it's it's really enjoyable because um, when you work at a chapter level, you get like lots of good control over programs and you get to participate really locally. And then when you join the state board, you sort of get to broaden your decision making for the broader organization, which now we have um, over 1800 members of the organization. So it's really great to get involved at the local level, knowing also that you can keep going and going and going and going as yeah, much as you want. A local chapter member, like you build this amazing network of people that are working right in your community, right? That you're working with one day, you're competing against them one day, and the next day you're on a team with them and you're partnering to do something together. And I just think that's where the world is going right now. I think our, our many of our parents work, grew up in this like, you know, Ford versus GM kind of mentality. And that's just not where the world's at in a global you know, economy, uh, there are times that we're going to com- still be competing against our neighbors, but then you just need to know that you know, two weeks from now, you could be on a team with those same uh, folks. And so it's a much more collaborative world that we're living in. I think it's a world um, that invites more sec- social equity. And as you know, that's one of my main roles now on the, um, on the state board, which I'm very excited to be working with Claudia Garcia. I'm very excited about the leadership that William Halligan has brought um, to the table on these um, issues. So you know, pr- some of my primary uh, responsibilities on the board 
are to guide the AEP Institute. And for you know, folks that are listening who have not attended an institute, we take a current topic every year and we try to bring some of the best and the brightest in the state of California uh, to participate in an all day forum. And it's really about sharing information. Again, in the spirit of collaboration, it's bringing folks that are really working on this issue and creating an opportunity for a dialogue. So everyone is invited to ask questions, to be fully engaged um, in the day. So some of the recent topics we've done, we've done VMT. Um, last year, we did um, a, a session on environmental justice, which is not a CEQA topic. It's a, a NEPA topic. But we're seeing judges you know, in California really remind us that it's about doing it right, right? The environmental document's intended to be a full disclosure document. It's not required to do an environmental justice analysis. But if you know there's a social equity issue that's normally baked into the baseline conditions, I think the judges are being pretty clear that you ought to be clear about what those issues are and how your project might exasperate those issues. Or more importantly, is there an opportunity to make things better? So that was really, really exciting. We took a little, um, break in 2021 uh, due to the pandemic and uh, we're excited we'll be doing a hybrid session next year and we'll be looking at carbon um, neutrality issues and uh, looking again at how those interface with uh, social equity issues which is what then led uh, I think Bill to inviting Claudia and I to um, to move forward with the leadership that he's provided on diversity equity and inclusion mm -hmm. issues uh, we I mean all the, the issues that we saw occur over the past two years, and they're not new issues. I just think people were ready to understand and grapple with these issues. Like we're in, just at a different place. Maybe the pandemic has opened up people's hearts and minds to think about these issues in a new way. Um, I would just say, you know, being an Hispanic woman, um, my dad's Anglo, my mother is from Mexico. My dad grew up in Mexico as an expat. Um, I've really seen both sides uh, of the of this issue. It's really hard for um, people that have a lot of things to even understand what they have. So when you are, your family has been here for five or six generations and you have an extended family network and you have friends of your family and everyone's there helping you, you know, that's an amazing gift. And no one wants to take that gift away from anyone that has that gift. What we want to do as we deal with social equity issues is to think about how can we make sure that um, everyone has an opportunity um, that equals um, the opportunities that are available to people who've been here for many generations. So I always laugh, Laurel, because a lot of times when I tell people I'm working on this issue, people, the first thing that they'll say to me is, I have no prejudices. I am not a racist. <laughs> Um, and the fact is that all of us have prejudices, myself included. Um, I personally have an issue with uh, dealing with people who are not that bright. Uh, and I, it's not fair. It's just not fair at all. Um, you know, if you, you're just born with less cognitive ability, I mean, that's ridiculous to hold someone responsible um, for that. So that's something I have to check you know, in with myself constantly. I have two really smart parents. I grew up with, you know, my siblings are all really smart. Uh, that Not everyone has that same, you know, cognitive ability. In my own business, I try to surround myself with the best and the brightest, uh, people that are brighter than I are. They tolerate my shortcomings and I need to, you know, learn to tolerate other people's shortcomings. So um, yeah, the initiative for, for AEP, I think is a really great direction for us to be going into we know that we have a demographic shortage right now um, in California. 
um, actually nationally uh, for people to step in. For those of us who are at the end of the baby boomer generation, right? We had older siblings um, that were, you know, hippies and uh, loved the earth and were like a huge part of that movement. Um, and uh, and so a lot of us chose the environmental professions. So as we get older and retire, we need people to step in. And the generations of, of trained professionals behind us are smaller, and we don't have uh, a representation in California that is comparable to the statewide um, ethnic, religious, uh, sexual orientation uh, makeup of the state. So it's a huge opportunity for us to invite people in these other groups to participate with us in the environmental okay. professions and the need is dire. So I'm hoping that this podcast and you know, other activities mm -hmm. that we're involved in are gonna really help build that opportunity uh, for bringing more people um, into the profession. That's what I, I appreciate a lot is you calling it an opportunity. It is an opportunity. Well, and I'm wondering, you know, why why you the there's less people coming to this profession over time. And I hear there's some generational differences. And what I've heard as far as I'm not Gen Z. So what I've heard about Gen Z is that they care about the environment, they care about climate change. And so, you know, I'm wondering if they're the next, you know, quote, hippie tree hugging generation coming up. Well, I would hope that all of us understand that not only do we want to make the world a better place for us, for those of us who are on the planet now, right? We want to leave the planet in a better place for future um, generations. And um, so, you know, that's, that is an issue, but how do we reach out to people? How do we even let people know those connections? So let me tell you a little bit about my own story. And I think it's important. Uh, so how did I get into the environmental professions? You know, my parents certainly didn't take me in that direction. I went off to UCLA, you know, to study, um, you know, to be a biology major, you know, with ideas of being, you know, pre-med going on to medical school. That was the dream. You know, like all Hispanic parents want their daughter to be a doctor. So, uh, but what I realized pretty quickly when I was there was that uh, chemistry is not my strong point. Um, and I didn't really like that aspect of the biology. The part I liked was the field classes. I liked going out in the field and realized that there was another major at UCLA, an environmental major called ecosystems. I didn't even know that major existed when I got to UCLA. So part of it is in the high school curriculum in the state of California, there's advanced placement um, environmental, you know, the AP exam for environmental, but not all schools have that. Not all schools have someone qualified to teach that curriculum. And so you have a huge number of students every year that don't even have that opportunity to know that that field exists. And if their family isn't a family that necessarily maybe does a lot of camping um, or you know going outdoors to do things. So you think about, we have some of the largest cities in the country are here in California. So if you grow up in you know downtown urban center and you never have that exposure, how do you get excited about doing environmental work? How do you develop that love for the world, for the environment. So I think that's a place that we need to start. There, ha We have to ensure that the environmental studies are integrated into the high school standard curriculum so that everyone has an opportunity to know that these opportunities exist. I think it would be a crime for someone to go all the way through school and not have done some kind of field opportunity. My own daughters went to a private school where the curriculum was based on natural resources and they start at the kindergarten and the kids go out for a two-day overnight camping trip and by the time they're in junior high in the ninth grade the kids plan a two-week field excursion in Mexico and they go camping. They do everything. They buy all the food. They ask the parents to be the drivers. 
they are responsible for everything on the planning of that trip. And I look at how that's molded and shaped my own daughters. And I think everyone should have that kind of opportunity. It's not for everyone, but everyone should ha have the exposure to it and have the opportunity to decide. So then if you do that in a more broad brush manner, you probably start to see a greater number of people in more, in more diverse cultures, uh, more diverse countries of origin, have that opportunity to pursue and fall in love with the environmental professions and you know enter into the environmental professions. So I had that opportunity. Um, I then you know switched out majors when I was in college to the ecosystems major. The ecosystems department had a relationship with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I was invited to come over to do a P appointment. They, uh, myself and David Castanon, um, went over on P appointment. We were both hired within a year as employees. So we went to graduate school with you know, having a job. We both had young families. We were able to support our young families um, at the time. And then when um, when things I mean, got difficult you know, from a financial standpoint, I had an opportunity to go into the private sector and people were mentoring me all along the way. I just fell into this opportunity to be mentored by, uh, by really high quality, high profile people. Not everyone has that opportunity. So I think for those of us who are successful, we have a responsibility to mentor others, right? To yeah. look for people that look promising, look like they you know, have that passion about the environment and encourage them not to just stay at the level they're at, but you know, I see that you have these skills and these talents and you know, what can I do to help you take that next step um, in your journey. So I think that that's, when we talk about inviting people, it's not waiting for people to come to us. We actually need to go out and look for yeah. those people and invite people to the party. I, yes, invite them to the party. Welcome <laughs> them to the party and then encourage them and ask them why you want to stay. And like, don't just, like, I oftentimes find that we do quite a bit of outreach for whatever it might be, our project, our job, AAP, we do quite a bit of outreach. And then once people get in the door, we're like stoked they're there. And then we kind of go on and try and recruit more people. And it's like, we we got to engage more. And, and that's kind of what we talked about with Claudia too, is that, that stakeholder engagement and student engagement and mentorship is an ongoing process. Now we can do it as, as well-established professionals, you and I know, and Justin knows that we need to like stay with people and mentor them and help them. I want to also communicate to those people who want mentorship to say you want mentorship and to yeah. show up. Yeah. And like take that opportunity. We are a very loving bunch in this environmental industry. All you got to do is be interested. But I'm going to challenge you a bit on that, Laurel. So I think we okay. are a loving bunch. And I, I'll just hark back to when I first <laughs> um, became involved with the LA chapter of AEP everyone knew each other. And the first meeting I went to, I felt like I was sitting on the fringe and I was like, it was like I had been invited to someone else's family party and didn't really want to insert myself or like didn't know how to insert myself. And I just got really fortunate. I, I, I'm a doer. I like doing things. I don't get some weird gratification from getting things done. I still like to do the laundry because you start it, you finish it in the same day. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there was a need for a newsletter for the LA chapter. And I had done the newsletter for the Mono Lake Committee when I was at UCLA. And I was like, oh, I know how to do a newsletter. Ha happy to do that. And they were like, oh, awesome. And that's how I sort of entered into the group. 
But I often think back about what if there wasn't something for me to do that I had felt comfortable volunteering for? How long would I have stayed out on the fringe and listened to this very familiar group of people interfacing with each other? So I think that's the challenge, right? That, that we have to not only invite people to participate, but we have to give them something meaningful to do and really in, engage. It's, it's hard to be the new person at the party. Some people are just really naturally gregarious, um, but not everyone is. And I think that's where things sometimes go wrong is we don't, um, we, we, we do a good job of inviting people in, but then we don't really integrate them into the group. We don't really, you know, give them a big hug and say, I'm really happy that you're here and, and I'm going to be by your side as we go through this journey uh, together. I so, think that's really, or I'm sorry to, uh, to interrupt. Um, it's a really important point because I've been thinking about this quite a bit where it's saying we're welcome, we're open. And in this, I think in science, you know, there's a stereotype that people are a little bit more reserved, more introverted. And that's why some people are attracted to that position because they are in the field, they are taking notes, you know, and you don't need to be really outgoing, but being very interested and interested in your career and obtaining knowledge like that's something you can connect with people on. You don't need to be working the room necessarily, but just putting out there, maybe, you know, you're interested in your GIS whiz or something like that. And what you're talking about is reminding me when I've done some leadership research and it was in a different context, but it was about employee retention. And what I have read is that one of the biggest ways to retain employees is to have an engaging onboarding process because that's where many people can get lost. And so it's kind of the same, same process where you're doing all this recruiting, doing all this outreach, getting people in the door, finding people to join your team. And then it's like, okay, on to the next. And so having that onboarding process for AEP or, or any organization. And because we've, we've all been the new kid at one point in our lives, you know, whether it was at work or at school or, you know, AEP. And I think having, you know, that, that buddy, that guide, the Sherpa, the AEP Sherpa to be like, okay, here's who you need to talk to. Laurel was mine when I went to my first AEP event. So I was very fortunate that Laurel was introduced me to, I think, every member in San Diego. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's like, it's, that's the right it's a two-way street. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's indicative, I think, of Laurel's, you know, natural leadership skills and um, that that's how we help people develop as leaders. And once you show someone the way, I'm sure, Justin, now you could do that for someone else, right? Because you've been shown the way and you're comfortable, you saw the outcome and you would be more comfortable doing it for someone else. Exactly. Exactly. It's a compounding effect. I completely agree. How do you, um, like what kind of recruiting and onboarding and cultural processes do you have at Sapphos? Cause you, I, I'm really, really passionate about your job. <laughs> you are a woman owned business enterprise. You got more certifications after the Sapphos name than I even know what stand for. And I'm so fascinated by your background, your story, your heritage. And now you're not only a leader in AEP, but you own a business that's, that's successful. How did you build this and what's the culture that makes it so successful and welcoming? You know, it's a really, that's a really interesting question because um, they talk about people who own their businesses as being naturally entrepreneurial. And I, I don't know if I'm the best 
fit for that. But what I can tell you, and I said it earlier, is that I've always enjoyed the process of doing things. I like visioning something. I can, like when someone asks me to do, I usually pretty quickly have a vision of what the finished product is going to look like, whether it's a conference or a meeting or a report or, you know, a nice meal. So I think that that's the work ethic that I was raised with. Um, my mom and I were having this very funny conversation recently about, um, I bake pies. I think a lot of people know that I bake pies as a hobby. And um, I was having, I was at my mom's house and she'd asked me to make a pie. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make it at your house. And I got there. I'm like, okay, where are your pie pans? And she's like, oh, that's really funny, Marie. And I'm like, well, where, where are they? She's like, I don't have pie pans. She goes, I don't bake. I'm like, <laughs> she goes, Marie, you made all the desserts when you were growing up. Do you know why? Because I don't bake. And it, was, it literally had never struck me. And I started thinking about it. It was like, yeah, I can remember many times my mom saying, hey, can you make a strawberry shortcake? Or can you make a pound cake? Or can you would, you know, make a pie? So like literally we had to go out and buy pie pans so we could make these, these pies. So I think I grew up with my mom. I mean, think about that. A lot of parents now don't give children that opportunity. My mom had complete faith in all three of us, our capability to do things and would give us assignments and not only expect that they would be done, but that they would be done well. And so that's a very empowering thing to grow up with that, you know, kind of expectations. I think a lot of parents now think that's too harsh. I don't have any regrets for being raised that way. I feel like I'm very fearless about undertaking new tasks or undertaking a task because I do have a lot of confidence. I will be able to complete the task. And if I don't have that confidence, I, what, I've, what I've learned as an adult is to ask for help, which is, I think, another really, really important skill is to understand that you don't have to be able to do everything yourself. It is okay to ask other people um, for help. And I think, and so building the business, the first job I had was when I was at UCLA, I was the catering director and um, I worked on the catering crew, delivering coffee. And then I worked, you know, delivering meals. Um, and that business, when I started on that crew was losing money. It was just a way of keeping students employed. And then the catering supervisor um, went out, she got married and, and went on to her master's degree. And I was asked to step in. And so, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, my dad's an engineer. I'm doing all the math looking at, I'm like, oh my God, we lost $250,000 last year. I'm like, we can't lose money. Who earns a business and loses money? I mean, it just, it, it wasn't that I was entrepreneurial. It just was common sense that if you're going to run a business, right, it should be profitable. And so we turned that business around in the three years I was a catering supervisor, we were making a million dollars a year. So think about all the other students we were able to employ when we could show the university that we weren't losing money, we were making money. And that was, you know, and I felt really good about that. There were other students like myself, you know, I paid my way through college working as the catering supervisor. How many other students did I create that opportunity to do the same thing, whether it was to pay for their, their tuition or just to have some extra spending money because their parents didn't necessarily weren't in a position to give them that spending money. And that that's the work ethic that I think I took into my first job is that if you're gonna do a job, do it well, um, you know, try to bring the best people in to work around you. So when I had the opportunity to create Sappos, it was not originally my idea to own my own business. Um, it was um, my husband's idea and he had always wanted to own his own business. I was like, okay, I can, do, I can do this. I'm excited about doing it. And it just, I really just took that same ethic of, I just want to do the best work that I'm capable of doing. I really want to make a difference. I really want the world to be a better place. And so 
it's, I think, kind of counterintuitively, I've spent a lot of time working on really challenging projects um, that other people might shy away from because on the challenging projects, you have the most opportunity to make things better. So a project that's going to you know, face a lot of public controversy, um, you know, I worked on the expansion of the Los Angeles International Airport. Um, I'm working on California high-speed rail right now, which I think is probably one of the most important things that's happening in this country right now. And so we just have tried to build that same enthusiasm. And when we look for people to join the Southwest team, we're looking for people that share that enthusiasm, that are have a, a really strong work ethic, that um, have a, a desire to have a life-work balance and who know how to say no and, and you know, can maintain those boundaries and who are really committed to making the world a more sustainable place. Um, that is really, and we talk about those values and cultures in the interview process. Um, we've just gone through a big exercise here at Sapphos of changing the way we compensate people um, in alignment with our core skills and responsibilities, a major transition I'm super excited about. Um, and yeah, I think that that's part and parcel of the way we run our business. And I think people, about 70% of the work we're doing at any time is with repeat work with an existing client. We have a really high repeat customer um, rate and we, um, we've never been fired. So um, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I think the, the, our core values are, our, our clients appreciate them and we seek out clients that are going to, we think benefit from the way we do work. I think it's, very important what you said. You put out core values that attract the clients that are that align with that work. If anyone who is entering the private sector or wants to launch their own environmental consulting business or even be a developer, it's so crucial to set up those core values to attract the right client for you. It's not a buckshot where it's like we're just going to capture anyone and, and anything because you're you're not going to have a sustainable business. So speaking of which, um, what does the term sustainability mean to you for business and for the environment? And where do you see the future of that word or that idea or concept going for our profession? That's a great question, Laurel, because I think that's where we're at right now. I think the, um, if you look at traditional ways of doing business, traditional uh, capitalism models, Right. It, it was a lot of it is built on there being more and more people to sell more and more things to. And we can't the world can't sustain an ever increasing population um, and not to say something that's politically or you know going to offend people. You know, a lot of religions built on that, too. Right. Have our religion will be stronger, better if we have more babies. So go out and have as many babies as you possibly can. And I love babies. I have two of my own. Um, but the world can't doesn't have an unlimited capacity to um, support more and more people. And we've, over the last two generations, relied on technology to try to support more and more people. So for me, what sustainability means is uh, building a different kind of model. I've been doing a lot of research on social capitalism over the last um, few years. Um, and let me just say, I'm not a socialist before we start getting all these nasty notes back. I love this country. You know, we're sitting here having this conversation uh, right before the 4th of July weekend. Um, I, I am, there's no other country that I would choose to live in other than the United States as my permanent home and, and resident. I'm so proud to be an American citizen. But we do need to relook at capitalism and capitalism should be about being able to make constant investments to achieve long term goals. It should not about be about making the most money next year. Um, I just think that I feel like when I was a kid, 
it was not it was okay to be poor like somehow we have somehow with tv and all the different influences we've decided that being poor is bad or that doesn't have dignity and being rich is good i i don't live my life in that particular paradigm i think doing the right thing is good uh, choosing to do the right things is good and choosing to make investments that are beneficial for the greatest number of people is good. So um, I think there are lots of choices and opportunities for us to make better choices. I think if we think about a world that where everyone was focused on not just themselves, but their, in their community, whether that's the community that you live in most immediately, your state, your country, the world, like, how can I conduct my life in a way that is beneficial for as many people as possible? The opportunities are just staggering. And I, I think we have that capacity to be moving towards that framework, but it's not necessarily how we're raised in the United States. We're raised on like, you know, capitalism and getting rich is the most important thing. Now, as business owners, let me tell you, this is what I see, because I've had lots of lots of employees and lots of promotions. The more money you make, the more money you spend. This is, <laughs> this is an unfortunate truism. So I don't, I don't think making more money should always be the end all. I think we all want everyone to have you know, an opportunity to have a nice place to live and have their children to have a good education. But if we were to make investments that move us in that direction of making you know education more accessible for instance i mean that for someone to be graduating out of school right now you know with a million dollars you know debt for with their college education that, that's just not that's not sustainable doesn't help people <laughs> so i think we, i think we are social capitalism where we're generating revenue and we're reinvesting it for the benefit of the larger mass to me that is a, a sustainable model um and i i would hope that more it's more people that have grown up with this idea that social equity is important, that more people will choose to be on that path because people will have to choose to be on that path. Thank you so much for sharing that. Laurel and I are aggressively nodding our heads for those listening and you're speaking our language. These are, this is a whole other podcast we can get into, but we talk about this a lot and the term we use for how you described, you know, sustainability and what we need beyond that is, we we use the term stakeholder capitalism and then um, regenerative business, which is exactly what you just explained. So we uh, are, are in very much alignment with the way you view this uh, sustainability and the direction that we need to go for the future with limited resources. Well, Jessica, I think in, in what you just said is spot on. In, in what you're describing as that stakeholder capitalism, that's to me one of the primary differences between social capitalism and a traditional model of capitalism in this country is that employees are one of the stakeholders. So many companies in the United States, when you look at, you know, these massive layoffs that happen when, um, you know, mechanization happens within um, a, a facility or something's offshore to another country. I, I wonder, people love to buy things that are less expensive, but as we are sold this idea that robots are a better way of producing things, what are we gonna do with all those jobs that go away? So I, I really think that we should think about where we buy things. I'd much rather pay a higher price for something that's made by a human being 
I'd much rather go into a cafe where I'm served food by a human being who knows my name, says good morning to me, that I'm, I'm willing to pay a premium for that rather than having my cup of coffee cost 10 or 15 cents less, have the margin, the profit margin for the owner of the company doubled, but have 10 people unemployed in, in the process. That's a real choice that each of us makes every day when we buy things, when we choose to do business the way we do things. Um, I won't name a company by name, but there's a company that's very, very popular in the United States uh, that delivers things to your door. Um, and that comes with a transit cost. Mm -hmm. It comes with unnecessary packaging. And it comes with a lost opportunity to socialize by going in to a brick and mortar store and having a conversation with someone who is a high school student or a young college student who is you know, working at a cash register and you know, has health benefits. So um, I choose not to do business with those kinds of businesses. I, um, so some people think I'm archaic and old fashioned. Uh, <laughs> I, I You're just thoughtful. <laughs> well, last year, my, my grandson wanted a, a skim board for Christmas. And um, I know the skim boards are made here in California, in Newport Beach. I grew up in Huntington Beach, and I knew that you do not have to buy skim boards online. And I went online and, like, trying to find the company that actually makes the skim boards. It just keeps redirecting you back to buy it through a third party. And I was like, I'm not doing that. So I finally got the white pages out and uh, found a co the company that makes <laughs> skim boards in Newport Beach and called them on the phone. The white pages, 30, that's brilliant. 30% less. The cost was 30% less by going to the owner directly. And the owner was like, I just wish more people would do that. They delivered it overnight. It was awesome. You know, so I just, you know, it's incumbent on us as business owners to make sure that we provide service that makes people want to deal with us directly, which means really, really being respectful of our clients, really taking care of our clients. Um, but it, it's important on, on incumbent on us as consumers to think every decision we make has a consequence. Yes. I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said. And I'm so glad you explained that. And I, we are, we're about ready to wrap up. And I think that's a mic drop moment, but if there's anything else before we wrap up that you'd like to share. Um, I, I just really appreciate the opportunity to be here with both of you. You guys are doing great work for AEP. We're so appreciative of all the work that, that you're doing for us. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to come in and chat with both of you. Thank you so yeah. much. We hope this, this, this podcast is a platform for diverse, diverse peoples to come play and learn and grow. And we want to be welcoming and inviting. And Marie, you taught us that through the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Initiative, what it means to be welcoming and why you invest your time in an organization like AEP. Thank you for your leadership in the organization as well as in your business and, and talking about the future of business. It's so important. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Okay, we'll do our wrap-up rapid five. So first question, what is your favorite daily habit? Gratitude thinking about all the things that I have to be thankful for. And I have a lot. I have two beautiful daughters, three amazing grandchildren, two wonderful son-in-laws. I'm a very, very fortunate person. I have a wonderful life partner. Um, I'm just a very, very uh, grateful and thankful person. Okay, three things you take to a deserted island. I struggled with that when I thought about that a little bit, but um, so people that know me know I love sushi. 
So I think I would have to take like a fishing pole or some <laughs> device that I could like continually like have, you know, sashimi at least uh, uh, with me. A sunscreen, I think as a parent, I should say sunscreen so that, you know, I could survive or, or maybe a hat, a hat would be good and a tent so that I'd have some shelter and be comfortable. Sounds like a vacation. Um, <laughs> okay, favorite environmental policy. That I, I I struggled struggled with that, but I think right now um, probably our you know family of uh, of laws that are around um, uh, you know equity, so Fair Housing Act, um, Non Discrimination Act. I think these uh, these regulations um, are the ones that are really critical to embracing social equity. Um, so in sort of, they're sort of tangential, but I think really they're, they need to be our focus right now. Hey, favorite fauna or flora? That is impossible. No, how can someone have one favorite plant or animal? So I'm just gonna just really rapid fire tell you, I thought about the plants. <laughs> And I thought about there's three classes of plants, right? So for just ornamental plants, I love um, gardenias. They are so the fragrance is intoxicating. So that's one of my, my one of my favorites. And then for agricultural plants, because I'm really you know into my little vegetable garden, um, I love corn. So probably corn flowers um, would be. And for native plants, sticky monkey flower is my favorite. First of all, the name sticky monkey flower. How could you not like that? And then they have these little cute orange flowers. Just by and they grow like when they grow, they grow over like entire edges of hillsides. So definitely my favorite. This is so telling. I'm like, I'm sweating. I'm loving this so much. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. I was like, yeah, I love okay, the classes. Um, okay, and finish this sentence. Wouldn't it be cool if wouldn't it be cool if before I die, we see a marked improvement in social equity? Ooh, I, yes. I got chills. That's what's up, Marie. Uh Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. It's been my pleasure, ladies. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As a new podcast, it really helps us if you share with friends and colleagues that may enjoy this podcast as well. And please subscribe or follow the podcast to be alerted for new episodes. If you want to submit a shout out, please send a voice memo that's under one minute to podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org. That's podcast with an S at the end, podcast at C-A-L-I-F-A-E-P.org. Or please send any feedback you'd love to share. Thank you.